When I think about First Church, I think about a people who love Jesus and love like Jesus. Sometimes people wonder why we do what we do, why we give so generously, why we love those everyone else avoids, why we seek those everyone else ignores, why we dance when no one else hears the music, why we stick together when everyone else is so divided, why we show compassion in a world full of injustice. The answer is simple. It's because of Jesus. He's changed the way we see everything. He's the reason why we live. The answer is simple. Jesus is why. Welcome to First Church, so glad you guys are here with us, and we believe that we've been placed here to love Jesus and love like Jesus. Our vision is to unleash a revolution of God's love on the 918 and beyond. So if this is your first Sunday with us, welcome. My name's Chad, and we are one church that meets in more than one location. We have family right now joining us from Stone Canyon, as well as others who will join us later online. So if you would, welcome one another to this time of study we're going to have here today. Now, Easter is just a week away. I know it doesn't surprise anybody. We're all looking forward to that. But right after Easter comes another season, and it's not summer. The season that comes after Easter is what I like to call wedding season, because when you get into the months of May and June and even the first of July, there just seems like there are a ton of weddings during that period of time. I was talking to one of our fellow staff members just the other day here at First Church, and he told me that during one weekend period in the month of June, he has three different weddings scheduled. I mean, that's crazy, but that's wedding season. And what I've noticed, the more weddings that I attend, the more weddings that I've performed, is that there are some traditions that don't change, they're just carried on and on and on, but then there are some traditions that do change, and one of those is the is the exit of the bride and groom. I think it's sometimes known as the send-off of the bride and groom. And years ago, people would just throw rice as the bride and groom would leave, you know, like the church house or the venue, wherever they were getting married. But that has changed over the years, partly because there was this urban legend out there that if birds ate the rice, that it would like explode in their stomachs or something like that. That's been totally debunked. That's not true, but it gave people permission to look for alternative ways to do the send-off. And so, I've seen different things happen. I've seen people uh, wave streamers. Uh, during one evening wedding I went to, they had glow sticks. At Allison and mine's wedding, we blew bubbles. You may have seen people do this. In fact, here's a picture from our wedding of people blowing bubbles as we were sent off as a newly married couple. So that was kind of cool and special. I've seen people light lanterns. I've even heard of people who threw paper airplanes as people left. So as the bride and groom left, that's kind of cool, I guess. Uh, I even heard of one wedding. I didn't go to this one, but I remember one wedding where they uh, sprayed silly string as the bride and groom left, and I asked, I said, well, was the bride still in her dress, or did they change clothes? I said, no, she was still in her white dress. That just sounds like a disaster to me, but all right, you know, whatever you want to do. It was their wedding. But one send-off that's become pretty popular, you may have seen this, especially for evening weddings, to use sparklers. One of Allison's cousins did this, and the pictures were just beautiful. Uh, You see all that all the sparklers, but it's a little bit dangerous 
to put fire in people's hands like that, I think. I mean, that kind of worries me. And I saw this video the other day of a bride and groom leaving. They gave all their guests sparklers, and this is what happened. Take a look at this video. You can see the bride and groom leaving here. It's beautiful, it's nice, it's pretty, evening wedding. But here come the bride and groom, and as they walk past the camera, take a look at the bride's hair. I mean, isn't that awful? That's terrible. I mean, that wedding was on fire. But um, I know, that's a bad joke. In fact, I showed that video to a friend of mine, and he goes, man, that bride was smoking. Now, I, I think he was kidding. I hope he was kidding. But that video just reminds me that even with all the planning, preparation, and rehearsal that comes along with a wedding, things don't always go as planned. Just about every wedding that I've ever attended or performed, something unexpected always happens. And that was the case for a wedding that Jesus attended 2,000 years ago. He was just starting his preaching and teaching ministry, and he went to this wedding in the village of Cana in the region of Galilee. And he attended this wedding probably because it was a family member of his. We're not for sure about this, but as we read the context in John chapter 2, and that's where we're going to be today, as we read the context, we see that Jesus' family is there, uh, his mother Mary is there. Mary seems to have a pretty prominent role in this wedding. She kind of knows some details about the ceremony that no one else knows. She's almost functioning like a wedding coordinator. And then also Jesus is invited as well as all of his disciples are invited to come. So we believe this is probably the wedding of a distant family member of Jesus or maybe maybe at least just another close family. Our family was close with his family. And Cana was right next door to Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And so Jesus, early on in his ministry, decides to attend this wedding. And weddings in this day, they were a week-long event. You know, typically weddings now for us are a day or two, but weddings were a week-long event at least. And so Jesus shows up, he's a few days late, and that's when he finds out that something has gone wrong. So if you have your Bibles or a Bible app on your phone or tablet, go ahead and read with me in John chapter two. That's where we're gonna be and we're gonna start at the very first verse of John chapter two. Scripture says this. On the third day, now this is the third day of travel. Jesus has left the Jordan. He's traveled to Cana. So on the third day of travel, uh, travel, their travel, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother, Mary, said to him, they have no more wine. Let's pause there for a second. This would have been disastrous for them to run out of wine because in this day and age, like I said, a wedding would last for about a week and the family who was hosting the wedding would roll the bridal shower, the bachelor party, the wedding itself, the wedding reception all together into this week-long celebration. And to run out of wine was a big deal because the water in this day really wasn't drinkable, it wasn't great, and so this is what you serve people. Now, before I go any further, I know there's been a lot of debate in the church over whether or not this was fermented wine because the Greek word that's used here is the Greek word oinos, and, it, and really it just describes any beverage of fruit. So some people argue it could have been unfermented. Some people argue it was. Some people said that. Some people say that it was fermented, but it was a low level of fermentation. I don't know, and I think honestly, arguing about it and debating about it misses the point of what's going on here. I think we need to focus on the miracle itself that takes place because this crisis gives Jesus the opportunity to do his first miracle. And if you've read this passage before, you know what it is. It's turning water into wine. 
And we see that Mary comes to Jesus and she's the one that informs him of this crisis. Apparently, Mary knows about this crisis before the guests know. That's why we think she had some type of prominent role. This may have been Jesus' family was hosting the wedding. And so she comes to Jesus and lets him know they're out of wine. And the reason why this is such a problem is because this was a sign of poor hospitality by running out of something. Now, in our day and age, if you go to a wedding and they run out of finger foods or run out of punch or whatever, probably people aren't going to be talking about you for weeks and years to come. They may talk about you on the way home from the wedding, and they may talk about you as they go through McDonald's drive through because they're still hungry, but they're probably not going to be talking about you for weeks or months or even years. But in this day and age, that's exactly what would have happened. Shame would have been cast upon your entire family. Your family would have been disgraced. Because what this was showing was that your family, one, wasn't prepared for the guests that they had invited, or you were trying to be too big for your britches. You invited more people than you could afford to avoid, and you ran out of something. This would have been a huge insult, and people would have remembered this for years and years to come. Like I said, shame would have been upon your family to the point that maybe down the road, another family wants to marry in or whatever, they would say, oh no, don't marry that family, don't marry that family. That is a disgraced family. Even to the extent if you want to do business with this family, there would be other people, oh no, don't do business with that family. Shame is upon that family. It was a big deal not to be hospitable in this first century Jewish culture. And Mary knew the ramifications of this. And that's why she goes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, we have a problem. Now, honestly, if it were me, I mean, if somebody was asking me or if God asked me, you know, Chad, what would you pick to do Jesus' first miracle ever? Because that's what this is. This is going to be the first miracle that Jesus ever performs. And if God were to ask me, Chad, I want you to pick, what, what would you pick to be the first miracle ever that Jesus would perform to announce to the world his true identity? You know, I probably would not have picked this miracle, turning water into wine. I mean, that's cool and everything. I can't do it. I'm sure you can't do it. But still, Jesus did some show-stopping miracles, didn't he? I mean, he did some pretty big, epic stuff, like walking on water or maybe healing those who were sick, healing the lame and the blind, the deaf, the mute. Jesus calmed storms. I mean, that would be an awesome ability to have, especially with all the wind we have around here in Oklahoma. I would love to be able sometimes to say, wind, be still, and it just would stop. I would love to have that ability. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Pretty big and epic. Jesus even brought people back from the dead on more than one occasion. He had that power. He had that ability. Jesus fed 5,000 people on one occasion using only five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus did some pretty huge miracles. And so, If somebody were asking me, what miracle would you choose for Jesus to do first to reveal to the world his true identity as the Son of God, I probably would not have picked turning water into wine. Probably would not have been my choice. And I probably also would have picked a different location for his first miracle. Cana in Galilee, it was a small little podunk village. Unless you lived in that region, you had never heard of Cana. And honestly, if Jesus hadn't performed this miracle here, it probably would have been lost to history. This village would have been unknown to us today. It was a small podunk village. And the venue, I probably would have picked something different for it too. I mean, this is a small town wedding. As much as I love to go to weddings, and you know, I do, as much as I love to go to weddings, I mean, this isn't like the royal wedding that my wife was glued to for days when that happened over in England, you know. This was a small town, no-name wedding, 
in a podunk village that no one had really heard of. I probably would have picked a different miracle. I would have picked a different location and a different venue. But I think this tells us something about Jesus. It tells us that Jesus doesn't overlook or ignore the small stuff. The small matters in life, our small needs, they matter to him. And at the end of this passage, John, who's telling us this story, gives us a summary statement of why this miracle is recorded in Scripture. Because we know all the miracles of Jesus aren't recorded in Scripture, but he lets us know why this event, why this moment is recorded in Scripture. And look at what he says if you jump down to verse 11 of John 2. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Canaan Galilee, he thus revealed his glory. And his disciples put their faith in him. So why did Jesus do this miracle? John tells us to reveal his glory. Now when you hear the word glory, don't think of like power or majesty or something like that, glamour. No, this word glory, this biblical term glory, refers to someone's essence or their nature, their character. So when it says that it revealed his glory, that's equivalent to it revealed his character. His glory, his character. This miracle may not have been a showstopper like the others that Jesus performed, but it revealed who he was. It revealed his true identity, and it revealed that Jesus notices and cares about our needs no matter how small they may be. And this need that arises in John chapter 2, it might not seem like that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things, a wedding running out of refreshments, but it mattered to that family on that day. And it mattered to Mary, Jesus' mother, on that day. And since it mattered to them, it mattered to him. Even the smallest details of our lives matter to Jesus. And you may think no one cares about the small little problems you're dealing with right now or issues you're facing. You may think no one cares about that problem you're having at work or no one cares about the peer pressure you're facing at school right now or about the family drama that you're going through right now. You may think no one cares about your hurt feelings or about your loneliness or your depression or the temptations you're facing. But I'm here to let you know Jesus does. He notices your issues no matter how small. He notices your problems no matter how small. Your needs no matter how small. Every part of our lives matter to him. And that's why I think Mary came to Jesus in this moment. Because at this point, she knows Jesus better than, better than anyone. And she knew he would care. And she trusts that he'll know what to do. Now, I don't know if Mary expected a miracle at first. Remember, Jesus has not performed another miracle up until this point. So I don't know if that's what she expected. But all of her hope was in him. She knew who he really was. No one else did. But she knew who he really was. She knew his true identity. And she trusted he would know what to do. And Jesus realizes that Mary has placed all of her hope in him. And that's why I think he responds the way he does. Verse 4, if you want to jump on down. He says, Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. Now, Jesus isn't blowing Mary off. He isn't criticizing her. He isn't saying, why are you bothering me or anything like that? No, the phrase that's used here, dear woman, is actually a loving term of endearment. 
Now, Jesus responds this way because he knows that in order to do what Mary is asking him to do, he's going to have to make his identity known. He's going to have to reveal publicly who he really is, and he's not quite ready to do that yet because he knows the moment that he publicly reveals his identity, it's going to accelerate his journey to the cross, and he's got some things he's got to do before it's time for him to go to the cross. And so he looks at Mary and says, Mary, in order for me to do this, Mom, in order for me to do this, I'm going to have to reveal my true identity. And it's interesting what Mary says next, verse 5. His mother said to the servants, the servants who were standing nearby, do whatever he tells you. I really like how the New English translation captures Mary's words. She says, whatever he tells you, do it. In other words, Mary is looking at the servant and saying, I'm not sure what he's going to say. I'm not sure what he's going to do. But if he tells you to do anything, you do exactly what he says. Because he's the one person here who can make everything right. And I wonder, I wonder if Mary doesn't say what she says here because of what she's been experiencing for the past 30 years. See, really, Mary has known for the past 30 years that Jesus had come to make everything right. And she had put her hope in him that one day he would. Because I want you to think about something. For the past 30 years, I want you to just think for a moment about what Mary would have experienced. See, I don't know how many people she told the whole virgin birth story to, what the angel said to her when, before Jesus was born. I don't know how many people she shared that story with, but let me ask you, how many people that she told that to do you think actually bought it? Probably not many. I mean, if a young girl came to you and said, hey, I'm pregnant, but I never slept with anybody, the Holy Spirit impregnated me. <laughs> Even if she was a good Christian church-going girl, would you buy that? I don't know how many people Mary told, but I bet very few, if any, bought it. And so you know what that means. In this culture, to say that being pregnant outside of marriage was culturally unacceptable is a huge understatement. Mary would have looked, been looked down upon her entire life. You talk about shame. She would have been disgraced. As she walked down the street, people would have whispered about her. They would have called her names behind her back, maybe even to her face. They would have described her in degrading terms. They probably even had names for her son. Her whole family would have been disgraced. Her reputation ruined. Now, even though Joseph and her married and had other children still, she was known for being one of those women. She would have been unfairly judged and mistreated her entire life. And she had done nothing wrong besides obey God. And yet Mary continued to be faithful, continued to do exactly what God asked her to do. Why? Because she knew who Jesus really was. She knew his true identity, and she knew one day he would make everything right. One day he would make everything better. That all of the disgrace she had to endure, all the ridicule, all the rumors that she had to experience for 30 years, maybe more, all that would be worth it when he made everything right. And let me ask you, who's at this wedding ceremony right now? All of Mary's friends, 
all of Mary's family members, all of her neighbors, they're all there. All those people who have unfairly judged her, talked about her, gossiped about her, whispered behind her back, they're all there. And I think when Jesus says, hey, you know, if I do this, I'm going to have to reveal who I really am. I think Mary's thinking, there's no better time to do it. There's no better time than now to let everyone know who you really are. She knew who Jesus really was. All of her hope was in him. And whether she did, whether he did something in that moment to fix the situation or not, her hope would continue to be in him. But she was betting her life that one day he would make everything better. And I want you to notice something. Mary doesn't tell Jesus what to do or how to do it. That's what we do sometimes. We go to God and we say, okay, God, we got this problem. We want you to fix it. And here's a great plan for you to fix it, God. Why don't you do it this way? Mary doesn't tell Jesus how to fix it, what to do. She just says, again, verse five, whatever he tells you, do it. I would love for us to be known as a church with that reputation. The word church that does whatever Jesus tells us to do always. We started a journey together. I'm talking about me joining this journey with you just over a year ago when I started as your lead minister. And a few months later, we launched a new vision, a mission statement. We want to unleash a revolution of God's love on the 918 and beyond. The way we're going to do that is by loving Jesus and loving like him. And in order for us to accomplish that, I think it starts here to do whatever Jesus tells us to do. Because here's the thing, I don't know where this journey is gonna take us. You know, sometimes preachers will stand up and they say, hey, I know in five years we're gonna be here, in 10 years we're gonna be here, in 15 years we're gonna be here. I don't know where this journey is gonna take us, but I know where to start. It starts with saying whatever he tells us to do, we're gonna do it, and then God's gonna take us where we need to go. That's what Mary tells the servants, and that's exactly what they do. Pick up with me if you would, Verse 6 of John chapter 2. It says, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And that's what the servants did. Now, like I said, if I had the choice to pick Jesus' first miracle, I probably would not have picked turning water into wine. And as a kid, when I heard this story told, I kind of had this image of these servants going and picking up, you know, containers, stone jars, maybe about yay high, this big, filling them up with water, and then they took them to the master of the banquet, kind of the master ceremonies, and had him taste it. That's what I envisioned. Probably a container about the size of a water cooler like you would have on a soccer field or football field, like the picture I have up on the screen, about that size. Now, it would not have been orange or plastic, it would have been made of stone, but still, that's about the size that I envisioned. But the Bible tells us that these uh, these jars of water, these stone jars, could hold 20 to 30 gallons of water. I have up here behind me six cases of water that each have 40 bottles of water in them. And each of these cases weigh five, or, or contain five gallons of water. So if you add all these together, 
That's how much one of these stone jars, that's how much water one of these stone jars would have held. It's funny, I brought Alex into the auditorium here last night because we had our man up event and he looked on the stage, he said, Daddy, why do you have all that water up there? And I was like, why do you think I have all that water up there? He said, I know, I know. He said, because you're gonna preach on the time when Jesus turned water into red water. And I was like, yeah, that's it, buddy. I guess that's how they explained it in children's church, I guess, I don't know. But this is how much water would have been in one of those stone jars, those stone containers. That's a lot of water. In fact, it's estimated that one of those stone jars would have weighed anywhere between 250 and 300 pounds. And here's the thing, you're not just picking that up real quick. You would have to carry these jars. They're empty, carry them to a source of water. They didn't have running water in their homes. They had to take it to a well somewhere or take it to a river or some body of water somewhere in order to get water. They had to carry these jars at a Good distance, for a good distance in order to fill them up and then bring them back. That's a lot of water. That's a lot of weight. It would have taken more than one guy to do this. It would have taken a whole team of men. And just to demonstrate how heavy this would have been, I've got over here to this side of the stage some weights. And these weights weigh 250 pounds. I didn't put 300 pounds on here because I can't lift 300 pounds. But uh, 250, I can do that. Now, it doesn't look like that I can lift 250 pounds on my own. I mean, I look, I mean, I know, I look buff. I, I'm aware of that. I'm self-aware. I know. I mean, I'm commonly described as a ripped guy. I know that. So uh, I'm going to prove to you that I can do this, okay? So let me get myself prepared here, and I'm going to prove to you that I can do just what I said I could do. <laughs> Ready? I'm not gonna do it. I'm kidding. That's a joke. There's, there's no way. I gotta be honest with you. I we had to have some football players carry this in for us, and then uh, some grown men, which I'm not one. Uh, they had to bring this out, and I tried to scoot it a little bit because it wasn't in the camera shot when we were going over the sermon, and I couldn't even scoot it. So I'm not even gonna pretend like I could do it. But honestly, we, we I did see one guy who was here the other day. He did pick it up for a second, and he put it right back down. And I said, well, yeah, you could pick it up, but could you carry it? You know, by, of course not. I couldn't carry it any distance at all. It would take several men to do this. They would have been worn out. And I want you to think about these servants. They're probably saying to themselves, why are we doing this? What's the point in all this? This is crazy. Why are we doing this? The only reason why they're doing it is Mary seems to be in charge here. And Mary says, whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. You ever thought about some of the seemingly odd things that God asks us to do? I mean, think about some of the stuff we do in church. Think about communion, for example. We just took communion together as a church. Think about that. I mean, from an outsider's perspective, isn't it a little odd and strange? I mean, we take this little, little cracker and a cup of juice that's barely enough to taste, <laughs> and then we talk about Jesus' body that was killed, crucified, and then we talk about blood, from an outsider perspective, isn't that kind of weird and strange? But yet we know that by doing it, there's spiritual significance and there's power in it when it's done as Jesus tells us to do it. What about when it comes to something like tithing? I know I've talked to Christian people before that have said, you know, I don't really like the concept of tithing. Take a tenth off the top, and does God really need our tenth? And they try to argue with the subject of tithing because to them it just sounds odd and strange. But yet the Bible teaches, and those of us who do tithe, you know this. When you do what God tells you to do, He blesses you. And your life is totally different 
when you do it his way? What about when it comes to forgiving people? I mean, I've heard people say, again, these are Christian people say, I could never forgive that person. Chad, you don't understand what they did to me. They've never apologized. They never said they were sorry. They don't deserve it. I've heard every excuse in the world why somebody shouldn't forgive somebody. Yet Jesus tells us to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us. Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek. And the Bible teaches when you do that, as odd and strange as it sounds and as uncomfortable as it may be, it sets you free. There are spiritual ramifications to doing that. What about baptism? I mean, I've heard people argue and debate over whether or not somebody should be baptized. And I just don't get that. Because honestly, if you study scripture, baptism is a clear command that we should all follow. I mean, Jesus commands it. The apostles command it throughout scripture. I mean, one example we get is in Acts chapter 2. And that's the day that the church began. And people are hearing the gospel message for the very first time. And they shout out because they're guilty of their sin. These, this was the group that had put Jesus on the cross. And they shout out in verse 37, what shall we do? And you remember how Peter and the other apostles responded? They said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you know what happened? Nobody who felt guilty of their sins said, nope, we're not going to do what God tells us to do. Nope. The Bible says 3,000 people in one moment responded and were baptized into Christ. And I'll give it to you. Baptism from an outsider perspective is a little strange. Typically, two adults don't jump into water and somebody dunks the other one. I know that doesn't happen a whole lot on a normal basis. I get that. But maybe there's a reason why Jesus tells us to do it. I know sometimes people will say, I don't understand how there could be spiritual ramifications for a physical act. If that's the case, then the cross is of no value whatsoever. The cross was a very physical act that had the largest spiritual consequences, ramifications you could possibly imagine. See, maybe what we need to do, instead of debating and arguing about the commands in Scripture, whatever they may be, we just do what Jesus tells us to do. And if, you're, if you feel like something is missing in your life, maybe you need to ask yourself, what does Jesus want me to do that I'm not doing right now? And if it's, if it's baptism for you, Guys, we're going to have an opportunity next Sunday. We did this last year. We're going to have an opportunity next Sunday. It's Easter Sunday at 3.30 p.m. We're going to have water set up on our back patio here at our North Garnett campus. And if you want to come and talk to somebody about being baptized, if you want somebody to pray with you, we will baptize you. And we want you to respond if that's what you need to do. Now, you don't have to wait till Easter Sunday to do it. If you want to do it today, we'll, we'll help you do it today. If you want to talk to somebody this week and then think about it, but last year, we had a whole group of people that came and were baptized on Easter Sunday afternoon. We would love to have even more this year. So I want you to be thinking about that. If that's something that you need to do, do whatever he tells you to do. Because here's the thing. In this passage we're reading, the servants carrying the water jars didn't do the miracle. They just carried the water jars. But that's how God works. We carry the jars and he does the rest. We carry the jars, and that's when his power is on display. We carry the jars. He does the real work. He does the miracle. See, when we carry the water for Jesus, that's when we see his power at work.
We just carry the water. He does the work. And I don't know what that is for you, whether it's baptism, whether it's tithing, whether it's something else. I don't know what it is that you need to do at this moment. I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey. But whatever it is, there's no better advice I can give you than what Mary said. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. The text says that when the master of the banquet got to taste this wine that Jesus had miraculously made, he was shocked. And he says, normal people bring out the best tasting stuff first. And then he says in verse 10 of John chapter 2, but you have saved the best till now. You see, right when everyone thought that things couldn't get any worse, Jesus showed them that the best was yet to come. Right when everyone thought the celebration was about to be over, Jesus revealed the celebration was just beginning. And here's a principle that we need to remember. When you live life with Jesus, the best is always yet to come. When you live life with Jesus, there's always reason for hope. And I believe there's a direct connection between doing whatever Jesus tells you to do and experiencing a better story Because no matter what giants you're facing right now, no matter what walls you're up against, no matter what pain awaits you, no matter what temptation is getting the best of you right now, God has the power to write a better story for you. And Mary believed this. And that's why she lived with such hope. That's why she endured ridicule. That's why she was willing to put up with all the mean stares and the nasty looks That's why she tolerated all the gossip that went on behind her back because she knew that one day Jesus would make everything right. And she was gonna stick with Jesus no matter what because she knew his real identity. Even to the point that when Jesus is on the cross being crucified, who is the one person that never left his side? Mary. She's there at the foot of the cross because she believed that he was who he claimed to be. She was betting her life on him. And I think we're called to do the same. Everybody that God ever used throughout scripture, he used in great ways because they were willing to bet their lives on God's promise. Why do you think Noah took a large majority of his adult life in order to build a big ark and everybody made fun of him and laughed at him, but he kept on doing it because he believed God's promise was real. Why is that Abraham was willing to leave his home country and move to another place? Why was it that he was willing to even give up his only son? Because he believed God's promise was real and true. Why is that Moses was able to stand up to the most powerful man on the face of the planet during his time, the Pharaoh of Egypt, because he believed God's promise was true? Why did David stand up to Goliath? Why was Daniel willing to go into the lion's den? Why were the apostles willing to die, be martyred for their faith? Why was Mary willing to stand by Jesus no matter what? Because they believed that God's promise was true. And when you believe God's promise is true, you bet your life on it. I've been told, I don't have much experience in this, but I've been told that when it comes to gambling, that the difference between a professional gambler and an amateur is that a professional never bets money that he can't walk away from. He never puts money on the table that he can't walk away from. He never bets his rent money, his mortgage payment, never bets his food money or his kids' tuition money. No, he only bets money that he can walk away from. Amateurs are the ones 
who bet money that, they, you know, that they're emotionally tied to. And I think in the church today, one of the biggest problems we have is that we have way too many professional Christians, professional churchgoers, who show up for services, and they go through the motions, but they never put anything on the table for God they can't walk away from. Oh, they might serve occasionally, they might volunteer occasionally, but they never put anything on the table for God they can't walk away from. And I believe the Bible is challenging us to be a people who bet our lives on Jesus, who believe with all of our hearts that he is who he claims to be and that he has the ability to write a new story for us and one day he will make everything better. Guys, I'm betting my life that Jesus is real. I'm betting my life that the best is yet to come. And Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday reminds us of that. I think it's interesting how this passage starts. I don't know if you remember, but back in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says on the third day. Now, why does John give us that little detail? It's not important to the story. We don't care when he showed up. Normally, John doesn't give us all that detail about how long it took them to travel somewhere. Why does he say on the third day? Jesus came to a wedding. I think John is pointing us to the cross. Because right at this wedding, when they thought it couldn't get any worse, on the third day, Jesus made everything better. And on the cross, after the crucifixion, after on the third day, just when all of his disciples and everybody else thought things couldn't get any worse, Jesus made everything better. I don't know about you, But I believe the best is yet to come. I have hope. You know why? Jesus is why. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for this time we've had to gather as your people here today to open up your word. And Father, I just pray that your your word will speak to our hearts today. And if there's anyone in this room that needs to make a spiritual decision today that they will do what you are asking them to do. If there's people here who are outside of your son, people here who have not been baptized into your son, Father, may you speak to their hearts today and may they realize that when they fully, publicly give their lives to you, that that's when you start to work. That's when they will see your power at work in their lives. I pray for Easter Sunday next week. It will be a great celebration, but I pray that also we will have those who will show up at 3.30 to be baptized into your son. But Father, I pray there's anybody who now wants to talk about that or maybe wants to do it today. We're not gonna wait. I just pray that as a church, it's our mindset, it's our philosophy that we will do whatever you ask us to do. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.